This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org slash webinars. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Rachel Dolan, a movement disorder specialist and vice president of medical communications at the foundation. I'll be your moderator today. Today, our panelists, people with Parkinson's and Parkinson's physicians, will discuss strategies for talking about symptoms and working together with your doctor on treatment decisions. So let's meet our panelists. Carrie Christensen was diagnosed with Parkinson's 20 years ago in 1999 and is a member of Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you. Mike Aiken was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2008, and he's a Parkinson's community advocate. He also has patient advisory roles with the Court of Pharmaceuticals and Voyager Therapeutics. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? <laughs> Good. We're glad to have you. And Dr. Melissa J. Armstrong is director at Mangurian Clinical Research Center for Lewy Body Dementia at the University of Florida. Hi, Dr. Armstrong. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So we've got a lot to talk about and a lot to get to, so let's go ahead and get started. So on our first slide, we've got here challenges to discussing Parkinson's with your doctor. And we don't have to tell everybody listening about these challenges. There are a lot of difficulties that can come from the doctor's side, from the patient's side. Some of the challenges are due to Parkinson's itself. So Mike, I'd like to start with you and have you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced with talking about Parkinson's with your doctor. Okay. Um I'm not sure the really challenges, but I feel a lot of people don't um, don't go in and want, are not honest, totally honest with their doctors because we we want to tell them about how things are going. Uh, we, we don't don't be afraid to tell them about the uh, off time or, or, or things. Like, you know, just be honest with them. So tell them the reality. You don't have to show off. You don't have to be your best self. You can tell them everything that's really going on. When we go into the doctors, we want to show them our best. We try to get it to our best. We try to control our medicine so that we're working good, looking good, and everything. But really, we should, sometimes I feel like we should be showing them our worst, if you know what I mean, our, our, our off times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you want to be telling them the, the worst and the off time and the things that are happening so that they can help you most with the things that are going on. You also right. had mentioned we were talking earlier that sometimes it's hard because you have so much time that happens between your appointment, and it can be hard to sort of remember what's happening in, in all that time. Can you go a little bit more into that? My wife, my wife would probably shoot me, but I would say keep a diary, but I'm, I'm lousy at keeping a diary, so I just I bring my wife with me. If you, if you can, bring somebody with you to, to your appointment because it's better to have four ears. You know, it's, it's amazing sometimes driving home. But what I'll think the doctor said and what my wife heard. <laughs> <laughs> so bringing somebody to the appointment can help, but but having that infrequency of appointments when you live day to day with Parkinson's, going for, you know having an appointment only every three months or every six months, it can be hard to remember what happened in those three to six months. 
Gary, can you go into depth anymore on, on things that you've experienced that are maybe struggles or challenges or difficulties with um, talking to your doctor about your Parkinson's? I, I think what I would say is that uh, in reference to the space between your appointments, I don't see my doctor except for once or twice a year, my movement disorder specialist. And I think that what's important is what is happening right now with me when I see them. And if there are challenges that I have other than that, then I usually make an appointment to go see them and don't let, if, if it's something that's really that I think needs the doctor's assistance or help, I will, I will make an appointment to see them earlier than I would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. So some solutions here coming up already, and we'll get a little bit more into the solutions on the next slide. You guys are getting into those already, making an appointment sooner, which is great, bringing in somebody um, sooner. So you're coming up with the solutions already, which is really good, but lots of challenges here. Um, Carrie, can you talk um, a little bit about, I know that you've experienced some of the non-movement problems with Parkinson's, maybe some of the um, anxiety or things like that that go along with Parkinson's, and sometimes people with Parkinson's or or maybe their doctors don't even recognize that those are part of Parkinson's, and that can be um, some of the uh, difficulty with talking about Parkinson's. Have you experienced any of that or known anybody who's experienced oh, that with their doctor? Oh, yeah. I think that I've been a vocal proponent for talking about the depression that I've experienced along with Parkinson's as well as the anxiety, but that's not easy for everybody. Um, I'm I'm finding that it's becoming more, doctors are becoming more aware of the, the fact that it is a problem with Parkinson's and they're asking and being more proactive about asking patients about it. But you, you should not fear talking to your doctor about it, even though it's difficult. I, I, the other, uh, one of the other things that I've experienced is apathy. And that's very hard to overcome. And um, it's, uh, it's just a matter of wanting to be feel your best, so you need to, as Mike said, to be very brave about talking about things that are bothering you. And another um, symptom that um, that is difficult to talk about is incontinence, that sort of thing. And so, but it's really important to know that your doctor is the is receptive to those things and can help you with the, with um the many symptoms that come along with parkinson's disease. Mhm. Mm so important. You mentioned apathy. Not everybody might know what that is, but that's kind of a lack of motivation that can come along with parkinson's and and depression and these can be really hard things to live with and really hard things to talk about as you said and especially if sometimes your doctor doesn't even ask about them. It can be really hard to raise your hand and bring those up in the appointment. Especially if you're apathetic because then you it, the apathy works against you in those ways. So, Dr. Armstrong, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now because um, you've done some really important research on talking on, on learning more about how doctors and patients have this really different vocabulary. I think that's something that we know, but you've done some work on understanding more about how doctors and patients talk very differently and how that can be an important barrier on getting to um, learn more about how a person is experiencing their Parkinson's and getting to the right treatment for that person. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, we partnered with the Michael J. Fox Foundation to 
interview people living with Parkinson's disease and their care partners, and then we followed that up with a survey. And we learned several different things about how individuals with Parkinson's, care partners and doctors communicate about symptoms. And one thing we found is that sometimes, as we heard already, people won't bring up some of the things they're experiencing because they're not sure if they're Parkinson's related. And I do think one of the challenges with symptoms is teasing out, is this from my Parkinson's? Is this unrelated? Or often, it's some of both. Uh, so for example, pain might be from arthritis, but for some people, the Parkinson's can make the experience of that pain worse. It may be better when the medication is working and worse when the medication isn't working. And then when people do bring up symptoms or notice symptoms, they may say, well, this is just part of my Parkinson's. You know, this is what's expected. Maybe my doctor can't do anything. Or they'll use words. Some of these symptoms can be really hard to describe. It's an it's a unusual sensation, and you don't know how to put words on it, and so you don't know how to communicate it with your doctor, and your doctor may not know the right things to ask. And so all of those different things can be challenges to effective discussions about what you're experiencing. Um, and so one of the solutions we found, and that's a little bit going on to your next section, is trying to find that shared vocabulary to know that you and your doctor are talking about the same things. Yeah, that can be so tough. I think another really common one that I always hear is um, people aren't really sure maybe what they're experiencing if it's tremor or if it's dyskinesia. So tremor can be that kind of, you know, involuntary sort of rhythmic movement, but then dyskinesia is this involuntary, uncontrolled movement. And sometimes people say, I don't know which one's which. Do you have that happen with your patients a lot of times? Yes, in the interviews we did, the physicians really struggled with that, uh, trying to to partner with people living with Parkinson's to, to tease that out can be really challenging. And so that is one of the, the challenges that many of the doctors identified is, I know this person is having too much movement, but I'm really struggling to figure out what kind of movement it is. And that, that answer is what often drives how you might change medication. One of the problems that I have is when I have dyskinesias, I don't know I'm having them so, because I feel really good at that point. My, 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 you know, as, far as, as far as me personally, I would tell you I, I wasn't having them, but my wife would say, absolutely, you are having them. You know, she, she can see it, but I, I really necessarily don't always feel it all the time. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a good segue into the next slide, Mike, where we talk about solutions, because I think one of the solutions is um, where, you know, where we talked about having your appointments sometimes less frequently with your neurologist or with your movement disorder specialist, your, your Parkinson's doctor, where you're not sure really what happened in those last three to six months. One of the things is to ask your loved one, that third bullet point there, ask your loved one what they noticed about your Parkinson's. So not only can they sort of help point out maybe what's been going on, like you said, Mike, the dyskinesia that maybe you don't even notice, but other things, Carrie, like you were pointing out, maybe the depression, maybe they've noticed there's been some change in your mood or you've been a little bit more apathetic about things. And these can be things that sometimes people with Parkinson's themselves don't even realize or notice that they're experiencing. So it can often be helpful to ask for somebody else's opinion um, of, you know, what they've noticed or what they've witnessed happening. Ask for someone's opinion Mike, as long as they know you pretty well. 
Yeah, yeah, they definitely have to know you pretty well and have been been in on what's been been going on. Mike, you mentioned um, keeping a diary, but that you're a lousy diary keeper. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Armstrong, what do you recommend with your patients when you tell them to keep a diary of their symptoms? How do you find that that's helpful for you and your patients? Well, I think probably what's most helpful is having a piece of paper where you can jot down reminders, maybe not a formal diary, but either in the months between visits or especially in the weeks leading up to a visit, what are some of the things that are coming up that you're experiencing that you think you might want to talk to the doctor about? And then before visit, you can prioritize, okay, now I have some ideas. What are the top things that we should cover in this visit? What I found and what we found in the research we did was that formal diaries can be helpful in very specific circumstances over short periods of time. But if you do a diary every day over weeks or months, that's really an overwhelming amount of information. It's a lot of work for you. You're jotting down notes every hour or half hour, and then it's almost too much information for a physician to take in. And so those formal diaries where you write down exactly when you took your medication, what happened, what side effect, those can be really useful in specific circumstances. Maybe you keep it for a day or two to answer a specific question, but that's probably best used in a targeted manner. And then you can keep some informal lists in the weeks coming up before an appointment. That's really helpful. And then once you actually get to the appointment, Mike, you mentioned bringing a loved one or a close friend or somebody who knows you really well, who can not only help with the conversation with the doctor, but also be an extra set of ears for things that you maybe miss in the appointment or miss that the doctor's talking about um, or ask extra questions. But not everyone has a, a loved one that they want to bring to an appointment. And Carrie, you talked about this. So what would you recommend when you're going to doctor's appointments regularly on your own? What kind of tips would you give there? Um, I don't know. It's just part of, the, of how I've operated over the last 20 years. I think that it makes me totally aware of my Parkinson's. I don't have anybody else to rely on but myself. And I would recommend that anybody who does have a loved one to rely on, which is wonderful, that they also don't cede all of their their power to that person, that, that it's important that you also remain engaged and active in your own care, even though you've got the extra set of ears. And so I think that's really important for you to be actively part of your own care. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not very good at writing things down because I, I can't write very well anymore. Um, what I really turned to, started to rely on, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess if I were really not apathetic, I could, um, you know, do it by a, a voice recording that might be very helpful. Um, and I also rely heavily on the summary that I am given in writing by my doctor at the end of my visit. I'm also able to communicate 
um, by email with my doctors, which has been very helpful. Mm-hmm. So all really good things. I think you mentioned one particularly good thing, getting that really good written feedback from your doctor so that you've got that in writing and you don't have to rely just on your memory or what you may have heard during the visit. Um, and then, you know, if it's okay with your doctor, just getting maybe recording what, what you talk about during the visit. Um, Dr. Armstrong, I don't know if you've, you would add anything to that. I definitely try to make sure that I write a brief summary in that after-visit summary format that most people receive at the end of the visit. Many of the people I see will take their own notes too, but that way they have their own notes, and then they have kind of the key messages from me also typed out. I also want to second what Carrie said about uh, making sure that you also provide a history even if you do have a care partner with you. We found in that research that you mentioned that there are some things that people with Parkinson's and their care partners both report, but there are also things that only the patients could say or only the care partners could say. So for example, it was only the people living with the disease who noticed that they had pain when they were wearing off. Um, or that they might have urinary symptoms when wearing off, and their care partners were totally unaware of that. Whereas the care partner said, you know, when my loved one has wearing off, they get really cranky, uh, and they have a real change in their personality, and that is someone that something that someone living with the disease didn't mention. And so I think it's important to, to take control of disease yourself, but also just from a perspective of getting all the information, the physician is going to hear different things from the person living with the disease and from the care partner, and both kinds of information can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. The care partner so doesn't getting- have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And neither does the person with Parkinson's, it sounds like. That's so getting getting information from both people gives more of a complete picture of what's happening, it sounds like. Exactly right. I, I like to have a list of some, some, sometimes. If there's four or five things I, I want to talk about, I, I will put down on the list uh, in priority, just in, just in case we run out of time. Let's say I want to talk about my shoulder uh, constipation or stress or anxiety or anything like that a medication, but I only had time for three of those things. So as long as I get to the top three, I'll feel like I had a pretty good visit. Yeah, I think that's really important because time is is limited in your doctor's visits, as you all know. And so making sure that you list your questions or your concerns and in order of priority and you bring them up. You don't wait until the doctor asks or until the hand is on the doorknob saying, see you next time, and you know time is up, and then you're bringing up what's really bothering you. But bringing them up at the beginning of the visit so you have time to get to them, I think that's really, really an important thing. One quick thing. My doctor's very accessible through uh, email also. So I, I email them a lot, a lot of different times in, in, the, uh, in the month or the weeks before, before my appointment. I, I'll email them so, so they kind of know what's going on also. Mm-hmm. So if your doctor takes questions through email, that can be a good way to communicate as well regularly. Um, one thing that we're getting a question about already, Dr. Armstrong, is um, when you bring up your concerns, whether um, you're not sure, we say bring them up whether you're sure or not sure if it's related to Parkinson's, oftentimes we wonder, is it Parkinson's? Is it something else? Is it regular aging? How do you distinguish between Parkinson's and just getting older? That's a great question, and and there's definitely no easy answer. I usually just encourage people to bring those questions to me so we can talk it through. Um, And then 
you know, it's often hard to know for sure, and there's often overlap. Um, so I think probably the most common question that comes up is uh, questions about arthritis and arthritis pain. Um, you know, arthritis is separate from Parkinson's, but a lot of people have both. And some of those symptoms are going to overlap or they're going to just build on each other. You may be stiff from the arthritis and you may be stiff from the Parkinson's. Mornings can be really bad when you have arthritis. That's often when people are at their stiffest. And many people with Parkinson's are at their worst in the morning because they haven't had medication from the night before. And so I think that's probably my most common example of two things that are unrelated but really get all mixed up because a lot of people live with both. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least on this slide, we talk about the importance of discussing your goals, Dr. Armstrong. So tell us a little bit more about how you can talk about your goals with your doctor and how that actually directs your treatment plan. So this is something that I feel really strongly about because everyone with Parkinson's is unique, both in how you experience the Parkinson's, but also in what's important for your life. And so when we're making decisions, which should really be a partnership between uh, people living with the disease, care partners, if you have them in your lives and you want them involved, and the physician, we need to know what's most important to you and what are medical decisions should be helping you accomplish. So one example of that will be someone with Parkinson's who's still working. And if you tell me, you know, I want to work for another five years, that goal is going to impact all of the medication decisions that we make. So we may say, well, Maybe we don't want to use a dopamine agonist because a lot of the dopamine agonists make people really sleepy. And you have meetings after lunch every day, and if you get drowsy, that is really going to affect your ability to do your job. Um, if you tell me, you know, my goal is to stay in my home, and falls are the really big concern. We talk about, well, we really need to do physical therapy so that we can keep you independent, decrease the risk of falls, and make sure that you're able to stay independently in your home. And maybe if you're responsible for your own medications and that's a little complicated, we want to work on keeping things simple. And so our approach to treating your Parkinson's will be let's Keep the medication regimen as simple as possible so it's really doable for you and you can stay independent. And so it's only by knowing the goals of the people that I'm partnering with that we can really make good decisions because it's those goals that are going to drive the kinds of things that we decide to do. So I ask my patients, but I also encourage them to bring up with me you know, this is what I have coming up this year. I have a wedding, and I want to make sure that my tremor is under as good of control as possible. I want to keep working, so I prioritize not having that drowsiness. I'm a truck driver, so I really can't be drowsy. It's those goals that will really be the main drivers behind the decisions that we make together. That's so helpful in that being very specific really helps you know whether the therapy is working or you need to change it or you need to do something different. Yeah, and, you know, I side effects are going to be different for different people. How big of a deal the dyskinesia is is going to be a big deal for someone and not a big deal for another. 
the drowsiness may not be a big deal uh, if you're not working, if you can take a nap at home, but it could be a really big deal for someone who's still employed. So the only way that you can weigh the pros and cons of a medication choice is with those specifics. And so on that note, let's move to the next slide. And Dr. Armstrong, have you just briefly take us through how you, with somebody's goals in mind, take us through how you approach uh, a talk, you know, thinking about a therapy for an individual person? So, you know, when we think about therapies, I think it's important to keep in mind what is the problem that you're having? What are the goals that you want to accomplish? And then also, what other aspects of your life and your health are relevant? So uh, I see a lot of older individuals with Parkinson's disease, and I am much more conservative about what medications we use in people over 70, just because some of the side effects have, are more common in people who are older. Or if you have other medical conditions, we need, may need to balance medication decisions with your other medications. Uh, we may need to balance them, make sure there are no drug interactions, though that's not too common with the Parkinson's medications. We also need to think about how practical is it for you to take medications multiple times a day. So we know that some people with advanced Parkinson's will even take medication every two hours, but that can be really unwieldy for some people. And then it is really important, like it's mentioned on this slide, that you need to make sure that you're thinking of options besides just medications. So we know more and more that exercise is really important for people with Parkinson's disease. You will do better with your Parkinson's if you exercise. And there's definitely a role for physical therapy occupational therapy, speech therapy, that's a big part of a multi-component approach to Parkinson's. And so whenever we're talking about treatment plans, we need to think about will a medication help or hurt? Will it help you accomplish your goals? What are the non-medication approaches that we should be using? And then you need to keep in mind, and a lot of people forget this, doctors included, you don't have to make a change. And so sometimes even when you say, well, I'm not quite as good as I was last visit, it may not yet be to that threshold where you need to, to add a new drug. Doctors really want to help you. Uh, and, so, and so oftentimes they'll off, offer drugs because they want to help you make you better. But sometimes the right answer is to say, you know, it's not quite time yet. Let's talk about that again next visit. That's a really helpful overview. And Mike, anything to add from your personal experience of starting medication or changing medication and even then moving to deep brain stimulation, which I know you did several years after having Parkinson's? Yeah, a, a couple things. I had gotten to the point where I was taking, you know, a bunch of pills every three hours and I just wasn't working anymore. So like Dr. Armstrong said, uh, I just talked to my neurologist and my movement specialist, and we came up with the plan with the with the, with the DBS. So that's worked out pretty good. But one of the things that she had mentioned about, I, I was in that I was that person that I'm still working, I'm driving the car, so I can't get drowsy. So it makes made a big difference to me. Mm-hmm. 
Carrie, anything yeah. for you as far as how you developed your personalized treatment plan? Maybe yours was more focused on the non-movement symptoms for a while? Well, I um, I haven't worked for quite a while, and so um, mine has been based on just getting through a, a day without work. But I'm also very conservative, and I've been very conservative about how I've approached my medication, and I'm... I'm wary of trying new drugs because I'm afraid that it'll throw me off my schedule or the, I feel like I've got a good balance going on right now. So I'm really not receptive to the idea of even introducing new um, therapies at the moment, but that's just me. And so um, I, I feel like, uh, right. You know, Personally, right now, I my daughter is visiting, and so she's really got me up and going. And I'm finding that um, I'm feeling really good about how my medications are working to keep me on an active schedule, and also um, on a very sedentary schedule that I usually have. So, but I am very wary about introducing or making any changes to something that's working really well. You don't want to fix what's not broken. Exactly. <laughs> it, does, it does speak to how differently everyone approaches their symptoms and medications and the treatment of Parkinson's, so how individualized treatment is. Dr. Armstrong, a question from William um, that says, how does a person evaluate when it's time to start medication? So that is a, another great question and one that comes up quite commonly. You know, when is it bad enough that I should start medicine and is there a reason to delay? Um, and there are lots of different opinions about this, uh, both through people living with disease, but also with physicians. So a little bit of a disclaimer that I'll, I'll tell you what, what I think, but different specialists have different views on this. If you're doing well and there is, you know, you're really not um, affected from a functional perspective, it's not interfering at all, then you might not need to start medication. But I say that with a big caveat because a lot of people have just grown so used to the limitations of Parkinson's. It's come on so gradually and subtly. They, they've kind of learned to adjust to it and live with it and they don't really recognize how much it is affecting their day-to-day -day life, such that, you know, if we start a medication, they, they think they're doing okay, but that medication could still make a big difference. So it's a combination of how much you feel it's interfering with day-to-day -day life, but also how much your physician sees on exam, because sometimes there'll be that objective observer saying, well, you've learned to live with it, but I really think we could make a difference with bringing on medication. And I do think there are a few myths that you have to make sure that you're not caught in. So there are some myths online saying that you should delay it as long as possible. There is no research that says that delaying it, uh, especially delaying it when you could benefit from it, will be helpful for you in the long run. The levodopa will never stop working. Uh, it, it, you don't get used to it. You do need more over time because with Parkinson's, your brain will make less of the dopamine, so you'll need more and more. And it may seem if you have advanced Parkinson's that the levodopa isn't working as well, and in some ways that's true, but it's because some of the symptoms in Parkinson's aren't, aren't from the dopamine loss. 
And so the longer you have Parkinson's, the more symptoms you get that aren't just about the dopamine, they're about other brain chemicals too. So long term, you will need more levodopa. It won't work quite as well because not all of the symptoms will be about the dopamine, but it's not because you started the dopamine too early. Don't delay if you need it. There's really no advantage to pushing it off if it's going to help you in day-to-day life. And one of the other things, too, is that, yeah, keeping your quality of life, Mike, but also it allows you to stay active, right? And then we also, we know the importance of exercise in Parkinson's. So if you're not taking medicine, but you're not able to be active and move around a lot because you're not taking medicine, that's not helpful for your Parkinson's. Absolutely. So let's, um, one other question before we move on that I'd like to start with you, Dr. Armstrong, but then get input from you, Mike and Carrie. Um, Orrid asks, how do you even know if your Parkinson's is better, worse, or the same? So we say, you know, your doctor is going to ask you, how's your Parkinson's been doing over the last couple months? Is it better, worse, or the same? But we don't have a clear measure like temperature or blood pressure. So how does a person actually know if they're doing better or worse? So what I would say is I am most interested in how you're doing in day-to-day life um, because ultimately that's what's going to drive a lot of our decisions. Are you having trouble showering, getting dressed, uh, exercising, uh, driving, um, you know, managing the shopping cart in the store, uh, you know, working? Are you having more trouble typing or using the mouse? So I am most interested in those very practical day-to-day things that affect every part of your life and your day. And that, for me, is going to be the biggest test about how we're doing with the Parkinson's and the biggest driver about whether we need to make a change. And Mike and Carrie, anything to add on that? How do you gauge whether you're doing better or worse than the last time you saw your doctor? Yeah, I think I think what she just said is, is, is right on. I mean, you, you you can tell how you're walking, how you're talking, uh, if you're able to cut up your food a little bit better or worse. Uh, for me, tying your shoes, things, things like that, the little things that get taken away from you, you get, get harder and harder, I think, you know, as, as time goes on. Well, I, I notice that my disease is progressing when I have more, I have an increasing amount of off time, and... Um, but at the same time, the levodopa still works so well for me that when I'm on, I'm on. Carrie, we're saying on and off. What What is on and off for people who might not know what those terms mean? Well, it, it actually, it took me several years into my Parkinson's diagnosis to actually truly understand it, and it, it, it um, because I didn't have off times throughout the early part of my disease. Now I do, and that means that when the 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 medication wears off, my symptoms click on. It's almost an immediate, like a switch going on or mm-hmm. off, as the case may be. And um, I, my tremor comes back, and I can't use my hands very well. And I, I don't have a lot of trouble with large motor skills, but it's all about my ability to use my hands in my case. And um, mm-hmm. I just can't do it. And it, that is kind of a new thing for me with Parkinson's right now is that I am – and that if I don't time my medication correctly, um, 
I will slip off my meds, and then it can take me a while to get back on, and it's very frustrating. Yeah. So off time is, as you described, it's different for different people, but it's typically when your Parkinson's symptoms return because your medication isn't working as well. And it's oftentimes in between right. doses of medication, but it can happen in the morning before your first dose of medication, or it can happen just kind of suddenly or unpredictably in the middle of the day. So you noticed, as you said, that, that if you're having more off time, that your Parkinson's seems to be getting worse. Right. And at the same time, it's worse in the in the way that it's less, it's harder, it's, uh, it's hard to explain. It's like, uh, it's just a matter of getting it to be more smoothly over time in control. And that's the challenge rather than actually controlling it. Because it is, I, uh, when I take the carbidopa levodopa, it is controlled. It's just a matter of smoothing out the um, fluctuations, yeah. Sure. But I'd like to make so a point. I've heard a lot of questions lately about, you know, I, I don't have those fluctuations that people talk about. Is my medicine even working? But what Carrie mentioned is really important, is that when you are early in your Parkinson's disease, often people won't notice those ups and downs. The medication has a consistent response. It has a longer response. Uh, you may not even be able to tell, even with the first dose of the morning, how much it works because your brain is still making some of that chemical dopamine and the medication's really just helping you out. And so many people in those initial years of the disease won't notice ups and downs, but the medication is still helping. It's just not as obvious when our good times and when our bad times. And then as Carrie described, that can develop over time where you notice more, oh, now it's kicked in, uh, and oh, geez, you know, it, it, it wore off. It's not working as well. My symptoms are coming back before I'm due for my next dose. So that's something that really comes for many people several years into the disease. Yeah, it took me a long time to get there, and, and I've just learned now that you just start accommodating it. Um, you know, I say I can't come right now to where I've go, uh, wherever I have to go. I can't get my pants on. You're going to have to wait until my levodopa kicks in, and I'll be there when I can get there. So you just have to kind of go with the flow. And laugh about it a little bit. But it can be yeah. really frustrating. I had to come up with a visual for one, one meeting that I did about long times and off times. And I told people, uh, off times felt like I was a, like a mummy. I was wrapped up like a mummy. I couldn't move my hands, my legs, or anything. And then on time, I felt like um, felt like the Hulk breaking through all the chains again, you know, coming out. And, and before DBS, in the course of the day, I would go back and forth between on and off several times a day, maybe four or five or six times a day like that. I, I, yeah, I don't very, very frustrating. I don't have it anymore. I have other gifts, but I don't much, have that. Much better with the deep brain stimulation. So let's move to our last slide, which is um, talking about the other members of your professional Parkinson's care team. So we focus a lot on the relationship with your doctor and how you can talk better with your doctor, but treating Parkinson's can take an entire care team and not just healthcare professionals, as we have listed on this slide, but also a much bigger group, um, different for different people at different points in your Parkinson's journey, which can be friends, family, support group, uh, pastor, exercise friends, um, but again, everyone's team is different. 
And we've listed many different potential members on this slide. On the left side, you see different doctors who can be part of your care team, a movement disorder specialist, a Parkinson's doctor, a general neurologist, to maybe part of your care team or maybe your Parkinson's doctor if you don't have access to a movement disorder specialist, um, and then your neurosurgeon if you have deep brain stimulation. And on the right side, all of what we would kind of um, put under the umbrella term of allied healthcare professionals, all experts in different areas and different symptoms of Parkinson's who can be pulled into your care team when needed for different symptoms. So um, Dr. Armstrong, I'd like to ask you to kind of take us through mainly primarily that right side of the slide, the physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, and others, and ask you to tell us a little bit more about these different professionals and what they can offer in the way of help for people with Parkinson's. It's a really important point that taking care of Parkinson's really takes a lot of different individuals, both in your life, as Rachel mentioned, uh, but also uh, different healthcare professionals, these allied health uh, individuals. And so physical therapists can be really good at helping you both gain strength back, work on balance and coordination, but also can help you develop a home exercise program if you don't have one. And they are really important and can be especially useful if they have some familiarity with Parkinson's disease. So for example, we know that in Parkinson's, people don't swing their arms. Well, it's really easy to get a frozen shoulder if you don't swing your arms when you walk. And so the physical therapist might remind you, hey, every day you need to move your shoulder. You need to do windmills as you walk or you need to swim to make sure that you keep range of motion at that joint. That might be something that your doctor, you know, you're, you're asking so many different questions of your doctor. That might come up. They might not think to bring it up, but the therapist can say, hey, you need this as part of your daily regimen to help prevent other problems. Occupational therapists are often very practical. They can give you a lot of advice about what modifications might help make your day-to-day -day life easier. Not all of them are dramatic, so there are uh, special um, uh, like uh, handles that you can put on the side of your tub, even if you can't drill handles into your wall. There are uh, handles or bed rails that you could put at your bed if you need help swinging in and out of the bed because of the Parkinson's overnight. And so they are really experts at some of those practical techniques to make day-to-day -day life easier. Speech therapists are going to work with you on clarity, on exercises you can be doing for speech, on, on projecting because you can be quiet with the Parkinson's. We've heard on this call about how depression, anxiety, apathy are really common parts of Parkinson's. Some of that you want to treat with medications because the chemicals are out of whack in the brain. But some of that is also figuring out how to cope. You know, what does life look like now that I have Parkinson's? And the counselors and therapists can help with that. Exercise is just an absolutely critical part of treating Parkinson's, and trainers can both inspire you and help you figure out what you should be doing and keep you on task. And then dietitians can be helpful, especially for those people who notice maybe the medications don't work quite as well if you take it too close to a meal, or if you have advanced Parkinson's, maybe you're losing weight and you need some help figuring out how do you keep on top of that. 
if constipation is an issue, dietary changes can help with your approach. So each of these individuals really complements what your physician might tell you. And also, they're very, very practical. Uh, and some of that sometimes gets lost in these conversations you may have with your doctor. That's such a helpful overview. How do you know when you need one of these extra professionals, and how do you ask your doctor, or how does your doctor get one of these experts involved? Well, I am really blessed to work at a center where we have these individuals on site with Parkinson's experience, and I want to acknowledge that's kind of the dream, that you have all of these people in one place, but a lot of people won't have access to that dream clinic. And so, uh, your Parkinson's specialist, if you do have a specialist, probably knows some people in your community with this training. There are also some specific services. The Big and Loud program is a specific kind of therapy program that you may be able to find in your center. The one caution I would give is a trap that I fell into before I came to this position at University of Florida. And I used to say, you know, this person is very early in their Parkinson's, they're doing well, they're exercising. This isn't a person that I necessarily need to refer to physical therapy. And what I've learned since coming to the center where it's easy to get is that anyone could benefit from at least a one-time appointment with physical therapy and occupational therapy to kind of optimize what they're doing at home. So even my young patients with Parkinson's disease who are doing pretty well, they're only on one medicine, they're exercising on their own, these are people I wouldn't have in the past referred to therapy, but they'll come see the therapist at our center once a year, maybe every other appointment with me, and they always come back to me if I see them after the therapy appointment and say, wow, you know, the therapist gave me this really great idea that I'm going to start doing at home. And so from this very practical experience, I have learned that almost anyone with Parkinson's could benefit from seeing these individuals to get some tips on how to do things better. You can always learn something new. That's right. So a couple questions coming through. One good one. Do you have to have a neurologist and a movement disorder specialist? I think that is a really individual question. And so if you live close to your movement disorder specialist and can see them probably on an every six-month basis or so, then you may not need a general neurologist as well. But a lot of the people I see at University of Florida, they live five hours away or more. And I feel that's really too far for me to be your main Parkinson's specialist. You know, if something comes up, you want to be able to see someone quickly and you want to be able to see someone locally. And so if you live more than about two hours or so from me, I recommend that you have someone locally and then also come see me. Or if you're someone who really wants that every three-month check-in, that's just not something that we have the ability to do. We see so many people with Parkinson's. And so many people will say, well, I'd like that every three-month check-in, so let me alternate my local neurologist and the university specialist, and that way someone is laying eyes on me every three months. But then there are other people who say, you know, once a year is fine for me. This is going really slow. Uh, you know, I don't need multiple people. So I think it really depends on how close you are, how much you need the follow-up, and also what resources are available to you. 
And that brings me to another question I often get, and I'm sure you do too, is how often should I be seeing the doctor? So that varies a lot from person to person, but I would say from the perspective of a specialist, um, usually we feel that for most people, about every six months is fine because most of the time Parkinson's is a disease that progresses slowly. And for many people, there's not a big change over those six months. I would say, though, that the, the caveat with that that I give to everyone I work with as they leave my offices, don't be a stranger. If something comes up between the visits, you need to reach out to me and let me know. So if I am not going to see you to November and in August you're like, ugh, you know, we didn't make a change last time, but now I feel terrible, don't say, well... I'll just tell Dr. Armstrong when I see her in November, no, 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 we can do so much over the phone or via the patient portals, which are like email. We can make a change to help your quality of life now. It's not that problems come up only every six months. So I think every six months or so is probably the best you're going to get for most specialists, but you should feel free to reach out to them between visits when problems arise. And Carrie or Mike, any experience with that, good or bad, with the frequency of your appointments or talking to your doctor in between appointments? Any recommendations for our audience? Yeah, I like to make a recommendation about every three months, but if if the three-month appointment comes up and I'm feeling great, I usually just email my doctor and say, hey, look, everything's going good. I'm going to cancel this time. But like like Dr. Armstrong says, at least every six months and – I'm unlucky because my neurologist will will get back to me. If I email her at 10 at night, I'll have an answer by 10:45. <laughs> but you know, so she's I'm, very I'm responsive. She's got a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I I uh, had a movement disorder specialist for many years, and as my disease progressed, I just found it more difficult. It, it was an hour away, an hour's drive away from me. I decided that I would rather have somebody closer, so I found a neurologist through my primary care physician who is local, and I've been using her now, and it's much more convenient for me, and um, it's been working out really well. So it's sort of a little bit of a mix of what works best for you, finding a doctor who listens to you and you can talk openly to. It's it's all about all these individual factors. Um, a question about switching doctors. If your doctor retires or, like Carrie, you need to find a new one. Any? Um, I'll start with you, Dr. Armstrong. Tips and strategies for transitioning to a new doctor. Well, I think the best way to find a doctor is to talk to other people living with Parkinson's disease. Uh, Talk to your support group, talk to the people at Rocksteady Boxing, talk to the people you know, because they'll really be able to tell you how well they work with their, their doctor. And then you can also talk to your primary care physician, like we heard from Carrie. They'll often have, you know, recommendations about who they've worked with who are good or who's responsive or who their other patients like. Um, And then if you're in an area with a university setting looking to have, see if they have a movement specialist. But I think it's the people who see the doctors who probably have the best advice on, does this doctor know what they need to know? Are they responsive? And really, what are you looking for in a doctor? Because that's going to be very personal. Some people just want the doctor that knows the right stuff. They don't worry too much about that bedside manner. And for other people, it's that 
you know, someone you can talk to and share with and listen. That's the big driver. Um, and so finding someone that you can partner with effectively. That's really great. Um, listening is a big one for a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people struggle to have a good conversation with their doctor where they feel heard and listened to um, and responded to. So I think that that's a big one for a lot of people. Um, Dr. Armstrong, another one for you that um, people are picking your brain here. What does uh, what does the doctor wish the patient would tell them? I definitely like it when people come with their their top items. So I find that really helpful. Uh, I know a lot of people are frustrated by the length of appointments, and that can be frustrating as a physician too. I may want to spend more time with you, but I know I have three other people in the waiting room, and if I'm going to be fair to them, I have to make sure that you know, I, I try to keep on time for all of my appointments the best I can. But knowing that I only have 30 minutes to meet with you, I want to make sure that we're using that effectively. So I do have some questions that I need to ask you and that I want to ask you. So I want to ask you about depression and anxiety and loss of interest because that may not be something that you think to bring up with me, and so I need to make sure that I'm starting that conversation. But while there are some things that I know that I want to ask you, really at the end of that half hour, I want to make sure that we have addressed the things that are most important to you, that have been weighing on you, that you, you know, that you wrote down and said, I, I just want to know the answer to this. And so if you can come with, you know, maybe the top three things in your mind, uh, that is really helpful for making sure that we have an effective appointment that you'll be happy with afterwards, too. So prioritizing on both ends, making, making yeah. the most of that short, short amount of time that you're together. Um, for people who do have multiple members of their care team, as we have listed on this slide, a really good practical question, how do you make sure that everybody's talking to each other, especially when there are different medical record systems? How do you share records, make sure that people are communicating? That's a really great question and a really hard thing. Um, I think that is one of the advantages of having multiple members of this care team in one place. So if my therapist see a person with Parkinson's who's going to see me later in the afternoon and they're worried about something, they'll just come and track me down between patients and say, hey, you need to talk to this to, you know, when you see Mr. Smith at 2 p.m., this came up in our appointment. So they just, you know, they find me, they tell me, they text me, they call me so that we can address that right away. It's more challenging when uh, I'm partnering with care team members who aren't, you know, who can't just stop me in the hallway and say, address this. And so a lot of times we do rely on faxes, letters, notes, reviews, and it's challenging. There are some electronic health systems now that will let your doctors view notes from other systems. Either they're open, so they just let them see your records, or you have to give permission for um, the other health system to release it uh, to that, that health record electronically. That's helpful because then I can see if, if you know, you saw another neurologist who also used the EPIC electronic health care record, I can then see that when I'm reviewing your chart before I see you later in the day. I do think that, that right now some of it falls on you, you being the people living with disease or the care partners, 
to, you know, coordinate some of that. Hopefully it won't all fall on you, but I would encourage you that to the ability to as the extent that you can, uh, keeping some records for yourself. Um, and, and having a, a paper with all your doctors, that can be helpful too. So you're kind of duplicating the effort. Hopefully your physician medical teams are doing it, but then you're doing it as a backup. And Mike and Carrie, anything to add there that you found helpful with, I know you've seen some of these allied healthcare professionals, anything you found helpful in, in getting them to talk to each other and work together? Or can I use my neurologist? As as the as the person that we all check in through, and she's all happy to do that. Usually, if I'm looking for somebody else, like a speech therapist or somebody, it's her that I ask. It's her that I ask first if she recommends somebody. So she usually, you know, knows somebody, or a part of part of the team, someone that they, he or she works with. So your neurologist I, is sort of when everybody's filtering through and getting all all the information is going to your neurologist. That's what works for me anyway. Yeah. Okay. I use my primary care physician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also stay on top of it myself. I thought that was really good advice, that I have to be sure that the, the communication lines are open. Yeah, so some of it falls to you, and then I think also, as it says on the slide there, making sure that one provider is the quarterback who's everything's going through, and they're, they're sort of coordinating all of the communication as well. So um, thank you all so much, um, Carrie, Mike, and Dr. Armstrong, for your expertise and your experience that you shared with our audience. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Please also mark your calendars for our next webinar on April 18th, where we'll discuss vision problems with Parkinson's. And there, we'll also have staff behind the scenes to answer your questions live. Thanks again for joining us, and have a great day. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.